Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. This podcast is supported by Ritual. So, y'all, remember how I was in the hospital back in July? Well, it's time for me to admit that it was because I ate bad sushi. So embarrassing. I should have listened to my gut and not bought sushi at that random grocery store. Afterward, my stomach was so messed up from like weeks of antibiotics that I knew I needed to get a new probiotic added to my regimen. That's when my friend told me about Ritual Vitamins. They have Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one clinically studied prebiotic, probiotic, and postbiotic that can help support a balanced gut microbiome. I started taking Ritual right away, and the upset stomach that I was getting most afternoons went away. I love that Ritual packs so much good stuff into one minty capsule. And these vitamins don't need to be refrigerated, so it's like really easy to take with you when you travel, and y'all know I travel a lot. It's time to listen to your gut. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Ritual is offering my listeners 30% off during your first month. Visit ritual.com backslash unruly to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com backslash U-N-R-U-L-Y for 30% off. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be covering one of the most prolific writers of the 19th century, whose stories you've definitely heard even if you didn't know it, Hans Christian Andersen. Andersen was a Danish writer famous for his amazing stories like The Ugly Duckling, The Emperor's New Clothes, and of course, The Little Mermaid, which came out in theaters yesterday. In addition to these fairy tales, he was a playwright, a novelist, and a capital R romantic. His writing broke many of the rules and standards of the day. He's also remembered as a bit of an awkward man who usually overstayed his welcome and couldn't read a room. Today, he's probably one of the most speculated about historical figures because of his uncomfortable and unclear relationship with his own sexuality, and therefore the people in his life. So today, I'm going to dive into all of that, and frankly, a lot more. For this history, I'm relying a lot on Anderson's first memoir, The True Story of My Life, as well as the biography by Johns Anderson, Hans Christian Anderson, A New Life. Since Johns, the biographer, and Hans, today's subject, share the last name Anderson, though they're not related, I'm going to break most of the rules of research and refer to Johns by his first name a lot. My apologies to the author. <laughs> but before we jump into Anderson's life and how he became the originator of many of our most popular fairy tales, I want to give a huge thank you to all the paying subscribers on Substack who make this podcast possible. Y'all are the best and this podcast wouldn't still be going without you. Each of these episodes takes me nearly 30 hours of work, which means they've become a part-time job. So if you like this show and you want more of it, please become a paying subscriber for just $6 a month or $60 per year. That means you get two months for free. Contributions really do help ensure that I will be able to continue doing this work. Becoming a paying subscriber will also give you access to exclusive content, merch, and behind-the-scenes updates on the upcoming Unruly Figures book. When you're ready to do that, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. 
And then one more quick heads up. I am going to talk pretty frankly about sex in this episode, and there's also discussion of sexual assault. If you've got little ones in the car who aren't ready for that content, or if you're uncomfortable with it, you might want to be ready to like hit fast forward at that point, or maybe even just skip this episode entirely. You won't hurt my feelings, I promise. Either way, I will let you know when that content is coming. All right, let's hop back in time. Hans Christian Andersen was born on April 2nd, 1805 in Odense, Denmark, which was then the second largest city after the capital of Copenhagen. His father, Hans Andersen, was a cobbler or shoemaker, and his mother, Anne-Marie Anders' daughter, was a washerwoman. In his memoirs, his parents were very much in love, though Anne was just a little older than Hans. They lived in poverty, though Andersen would classify that poverty as somewhat noble. In his memoir, he described the family's little rented house as clean, covered with pictures, and complete with a kitchen full of shining plates and metal pans. He renders it as a happy childhood. Quote, My father gratified me in all my wishes. I possessed his whole heart. He lived for me. End quote. He claims that his father built him a cradle out of the catafalque that held up the, co the coffin of a Count Tramp, and the three of them lived together peacefully for a long time. To be frank... His memoir, The True Story of My Life, written in 1847, is filled with sentimental tripe. Uh, the fact is that in writing this memoir and his later memoir, The Fairy Tale of My Life, Anderson was gilding his memories. His memoir is one of the most biased I think I've ever read. He had a clear mission in writing it, and so the truth of his childhood is really lost in the weeds. It's an artistically driven mythology that he builds, not unlike Audre Lorde's biomythography, Zami, A New Spelling of My Name, which was written like over a hundred years later. Lorde at least owns that's what she was doing. Anderson tries not to. Anderson might have had many motivations to write the sanitized version of his life. You know, I'll bring this up more later on, but I suspect part of it might have been trauma and an unwillingness to look too closely at the darker aspects of his own life, let alone reveal them to anyone else on paper, more, moreover. Perhaps more directly, though, uh, when he agreed to set his life down in a memoir for a publisher, it was also consciously designed to live up to the, like, capital R romantic era like, quote, dream about the pure and untainted person who, like the child, was filled with impulsive spirit in nature. The autobiographies were meant to express a positive story about the divine in human beings, end quote. Anderson was hugely influenced by philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who believed in the inherent goodness of man, and he wanted to forward that philosophy, which is all well and good. I'm all for believing that man is born good and taught evil, but it does mean that his memoirs occasionally uh, lie. I actually think, ironically, that the true story of his life, where he suffered kind of great trauma and still turned out to be a genius artist who loved people, is actually a better version of Rousseau's ideal, perhaps, but it didn't fit in with 19th century ideals. So to get a clear picture of his childhood, we have to turn to, ironically, his fairy tales. Anderson didn't begin writing fairy tales from the start. He had had an interest in folk tales since childhood, but his early writings were mostly essays, poetry, plays, novels, and travelogues. It was in the mid-1830s, when he was in his early 30s, that he began writing fairy tales, though he regarded them as just one artistic option available to him. The fairy tales were full of a, quote, far more evil and cruel world, one much closer to reality in terms of his childhood story than in his purportedly factual memoirs. In 1842, he began writing The Ugly Duckling, though it didn't gain that name until like, moments before its publication in November 1843. 
I've taken us this far forward to Anderson being almost 40 years old because The Ugly Duckling, more than his own memoir, tells us about Anderson's childhood. If you're not familiar, the story follows a duckling who hatches at the same time as his brothers and sisters. However, they consider him ugly and ostracize him from the nest. He wanders alone until he encounters some swans when he realizes that, in fact, he has grown into a swan too. It's a good tale about, like, bullying, um, but it betrays, like, a deep-seated sadness in Anderson. As his biographer Jean Anderson wrote, quote, Many people read and interpreted the tale as a story about him equating the duckling with its author. The persecuted and eternally struggling young bird withstands all the humiliations with such an indomitable and proud spirit, only to end up so weak and obedient on the last pages of the story. End quote. And so with that arc in mind, let's try that childhood story again. Keep in mind there's, quote, an abyss of contradictions between Anderson's idyllic autobiography and the, quote, chaotic, shattered, and traumatizing family patterns that we find in his fairy tales, novels, and plays. Fictions that open up like Pandora's box and outpour evil stepfathers and unnatural mothers, rapes, incest, and, in particular, children who are lost or gone astray, end quote. His mother, Anne-Marie Anders' daughter, was a full 10 years older than her husband, Hans Anderson. In that time, it was actually common for younger men to marry older women. They, quote, took on a matron to avoid having a fertile partner that would result in more mouths than they could afford to feed. That said, Anne-Marie was already roughly eight months pregnant when our hero, um, or with our hero when the two married. She also had a daughter already, a girl named Karen. This half-sister is not mentioned in Anderson's autobiographies, which led a lot of people to believe he was an only child for a very long time. Don't worry, we'll come back to Karen. Anderson's parents were married, but perhaps not as idyllically in love as he'd have us believe. They married before Anderson was born, but didn't live together until a year after. His biographer Jeans believes that they were homeless for a period. The house you see today in Odense, known as the Hans Christian Anderson house, is one of the many myths of the author's childhood. We don't know where he was born, and he seems to have disavowed that house as his birthplace or childhood home during his lifetime. His, his mother, Anne-Marie, might have worked as a prostitute both before and after her marriage to make ends meet, and that might be where Karen was conceived. Anne-Marie's mother certainly owned a brothel, and when she died, it was up to Anne to take care of her two younger sisters, both from different fathers. It's not hard to believe that she would have continued the family business, as it were, though it would have been risky. During this period in Denmark, a woman who gave birth out of wedlock three times could be imprisoned and fined, then turned back out on the street without any actual support for herself or her children, and no and little recourse to get the father to support her or the children. To be fair-ish, if a man was accused of having fathered three children out of wedlock, he too would be fined, and his fine was twice as much as the woman's, but the courts didn't force him to then like take an active role in his children's lives. Perhaps because of Anne-Marie's trade, at some point there was a rumor that Anderson was not his father's biological child. This might also be because his last name is not Hansen. In Danish culture, it was traditional to give a son his father's first name plus Sen as the surname. By that tradition, our author should be named Hans Christian Hansen, if his father was his father. In the most fantastical version of this kind of illegitimacy story, Anderson is actually the son of the King of Denmark, Christian VIII, who supposedly passed through Odense and gave up his child with his mistress, the Countess Elise Alfeld Lorvig, to a noble poor couple with the promise that he'd financially care for the child. 
It sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? It has a certain like romantic mythos to it, but it's easy to disprove. Christian VIII wasn't even in Denmark at the time. And on the day of Anderson's birth, the Countess Elise was at a public concert, though she was in Odense. Also, there was that, where was that financial support for the first 16 years of his life? Despite the tales, it seems that Anderson believed that the man who raised him was also his biological father. Anderson's father, Hans, was a sensitive soul as well, who wanted nothing more than to go to school. In fact, Anderson wrote that he had a superb mind. However, he had been apprenticed at a young age to a cobbler, and that became his trade. He wanted Anderson to get an education, though that didn't begin until Anderson was in his late teens and his father already dead. He was perhaps the more emotionally involved parent. He read Anderson's stories, especially from um, the 1001 Arabian Nights. He, he took his son on long walks through the woods where he let him play like make-believe. Basically, he was careful to nurture like a really spiritual and intellectual side to his son that his mother, who never received an education, didn't do. His father, that is Anderson's paternal grandfather named Anders Hansen, had also once been a gentle and intelligent spirit who had owned a farm. However, he apparently, quote, lost his mind, though it's not clear what exactly that means. He apparently, quote, roamed the streets of Odense wearing an emperor's crown made of gold paper. According to Anderson, this grandfather also carved out of wood strange figures like men with beasts' head and beasts with wings. These he packed in a basket and carried them out into the country to sell or give away. Anderson was, quote, very much afraid of his grandfather, even in his own memoirs. He recalls seeing, quote, the boys in the street shouting after him, and the young boy hid from all of them. In 1808 or so, Hans Anderson became intrigued by Napoleon Bonaparte and wanted to go fight with the French army. He saw the soldier's life as romantic and was drawn to it, all the more by kind of like the disastrous inflation in Denmark that began in 1810 and eventually would bankrupt the country. After years of toying with the idea in 1812, Hans Anderson joined up. Well, technically, he actually took the place of another man who had been conscripted. Um, Hans was exempt from military service, but a rich farmer's son who had been called up didn't want to go, so he paid Hans Anderson to take his place. He had hoped that joining up would give him not just glory and expand his horizons, but would also provide his family with a much more steady income than shoemaking had. It wasn't to be. In 1813, the child author Anderson and his mother are included on a list of individuals in Odense receiving public assistance from the government. They received bread, pork, grain, butter, and peat to burn. Um, in 1814, Anderson's father returned a broken man. He didn't fire a single shot in the war, and he was, quote, psychologically marked by his fruitless, passive days in the field. Once again, he had failed to achieve anything great, end quote. In Anderson's autobiography, he recalls that his father woke one morning during the winter of 1814 talking about Napoleon. Quote, he fancied that he had received orders from him to take the command. My mother immediately sent me not to the physician, but to a so-called wise woman some miles from Odense. She questioned me, measured my arm with a woolen thread, made extraordinary signs, and at last laid a green twig upon my breast. End quote. She then sent Anderson home by way of the river, saying that if he saw his father's ghost there, that meant he would die. Anderson didn't see his father's ghost, but he died a few days later anyway. He recalled that his father had, one day that winter, suddenly propped himself up to look out the window and said, Look, there you can see the ice maiden on the window pane. She's coming now to get me. End quote. 
this illustrates an important point. Though Christianity had of course arrived in Denmark by this time, Anne-Marie was not particularly religious, nor did she go in much for science. It never occurred to her to get a doctor for her husband. Instead, she believed in the old ways and old superstitions. According to Jean Zanderson, quote, ghosts were very much part of reality in Denmark around 1800. Folks saw them with some regularity, and it probably didn't seem like an antithesis to Christianity, like similar beliefs are sort of seen today. Though Anderson would later talk about God in very Christian terms, he also clearly held on to his mother's beliefs as well. His view of life and the world around him was very animistic, really. The loss of his father had a profound impact on Anderson. He was left to himself while his mother doubled down on work to make ends meet. He retreated into his imagination. He made a little theater at home, made dolls clothes, and like created plays. He rarely spent time with children his age, and especially not the boys. He would play with girls his age if there were only a couple of them, but he was too shy to approach a group. Without his father, his childhood became very lonely. However, his mother remarried another shoemaker who was also younger than her. And her daughter, Karen, Anderson's half-sister, must have been around. You know, Anderson so thoroughly excised her from his life story that it's hard to know, but certainly Karen would have been around while she was young. Her father was not in the picture, nor were her maternal grandparents. Her two aunts were probably still living and working in brothels, so not like a suitable place for a young girl to live. So who else would have taken care of her? Karen was only about four years older than Anderson, so during his early childhood, she should have been around. She apparently was apprenticed to be a maid in a household at some point, but still, she would have come home for the holidays. But again, she's literally never mentioned in any of his autobiographies, so it's hard to say where she went and what she was doing. Did she comfort her younger brother when his dad died? Who knows? Soon after his father's death, Anderson went to work in a cloth factory. In his memoirs, he says that his mother sent him to do this, quote, not for the sake of money, but that she might know where I was and what I was doing, end quote. Which again, sounds like bunk to me. They would have needed the wages. His mother's pay from washing wouldn't have been enough. I mean, they were suffering and, and impoverished when they had two incomes. Um, so yeah, this time at the factory was very traumatic. I'm going to get more into it later, but let's just say it was not a safe place for a young boy like Anderson. Between 1814 and 1819, we don't know much of what was going on in Anderson's life. He was sent to a charity school where he learned a little about a little bit of like religion and arithmetic. He acted as a background character uh, when performers from the theater Royal passed through Odensa. He started writing a little. His first piece was a tragedy. Uh, his neighbor made fun of it, and Anderson's mother told him it was because the neighbor was jealous because her son had never written anything. After that, he tried to write a piece that included the king and queen of Denmark, but knew that they shouldn't sound like the lay people of Odensa, so he put together nonsense words from several languages like German, French, and English, and just like inserted them into the speeches his royal characters gave. <laughs> It probably read like absolute nonsense, but I think this highlights both like his create creativity and sense of the world at like a really young age. So we'll skip ahead to September 6, 1819. 
Later in his life, Anderson would somewhat jokingly refer to this day as his birthday, but it was the day that he arrived in Copenhagen. Just over 14 years old, he had just been confirmed in the church and was ready to be an adult, more or less. He had saved up 13 rigsdaler, the Danish currency at the time, which felt like true wealth to him. His mother wanted him to be apprenticed to a tailor, but he, um, because he loved making clothes for the puppets in his theater, but he told her that he wanted to go to Copenhagen. What wilt thou do there? She asked. I will become famous, he replied, though he didn't seem to understand exactly how. She forbade this move at first, but according to his memoir, she called a wise woman to see what the woman foresaw in Anderson's future. Apparently, the woman said, quote, Your son will become a great man, and in honor of him, Odensa will one day be illuminated. Having heard that, his mother wept with joy and allowed him to go. Now, Copenhagen was not, like, a great city at the time. I mean, it was famous for, like, its intellectual scene and its art, but it hadn't quite recovered from, like, the economic crash six years before. It was a small city with about 100,000 inhabitants, but there were four times as many rats and other animals sharing the city. In fact, there were so many horses and cows that many families had to construct their stables on the second floor of buildings, meaning that animals had to be, like, hoisted up and down to enter and exit. People were crammed into dark garret rooms because that's the only place they could sleep. Packs of starving dogs roamed the streets, which were paved but didn't have sewers, so they were always at least a little flooded with rainwater, sewage, and scraps of food. Naturally, viruses did great in these conditions, and several epidemics ravaged the city repeatedly. However, doctors were much too expensive, so many people just, like, died when they got sick because they couldn't afford treatment. Unemployment was very high and morals were really lax. The city was packed with released soldiers who couldn't find work and prostitution was on the rise. Illegitimate births accounted for a full 25% of all births in Copenhagen around this time. The Royal Theatre in this situation then became a favorite pastime of many people in the city because it allowed them the illusion of order. It gave them somewhere to escape to for a few hours if they could afford it. So Anderson took his life savings with him, all 13 Riggsdaler, to Copenhagen. He was convinced through his interactions with actors when they'd come through Odensa that he was des like destined to be an actor as well. He had heard of the famous actress Madame Schall, and he resolved to present himself to her and to obtain her support to join the theater. The very next day after his arrival, Anderson showed up at the theater and asked to meet the famous actress. He was shown to her dressing room and told her that he loved the theater and wanted to join. She asked him what characters he felt he could portray, and he told her gravely that he thought he'd make a good Cinderella. He launched into a monologue he'd memorized, then a song and dance, and she kicked him out soon after. Later on, she admitted to thinking that he was more lunatic than genius. He repeated this same performance with theater directors and managers, and all of them told him no. One in particular said he was, quote, too thin for the theater, and Anderson, a little cheekily, I think, responded that if the manager would give him a salary of 100 rigsdaler a month, then he would endeavor to grow fat as quickly as possible. This all took a few weeks, probably, and Anderson was quickly running out of money. He grew desperate and terrified of having to turn, return back to Odensa, sure that he'd be ridiculed. Finally, he approached the theater's choir master, Giuseppe Siboni, at his home. 
When the maid answered the door, Anderson tearfully told her his life story up to then. He must have looked pathetic in his clothes that were too small. Anderson had managed to shoot up to over six feet tall at this time, and they couldn't afford to keep buying him new clothes. Um, so the maid let him in and gave him a little food. She ended up repeating the story to Sibony and his guests, who voted to allow him to come into the dining room so they could get a better look at him. So Anderson put on the best show he could for these rich people, knowing his other option was to get back on a boat um, to go home for a fate as a tailor, which he didn't want. At once impressed, Sibony promised to train the young boy in singing for free and took it upon himself to ensure that he'd get a basic education. He also encouraged his guests that night to donate to his care and raised between like 70 and 80 rigs dollar for that. Keep in mind, Anderson had thought 13 rigs dollar was like wealth, so this amount was probably more money than he'd ever seen in his life. Sibony handed, handled it for him, again Anderson was 14, and suddenly Anderson had a place in the world. I realize the story sounds like sort of ridiculous, but it was not uncommon. It might have been an age of huge wealth disparities, but it was also an age of serious philanthropy. Quote, among the well-educated and the intellectuals, there was a sophisticated sense and an alert eye for what was extraordinary in individual people, end quote. When they crossed paths with poor artists or poor geniuses, it was their duty and pleasure to sponsor them to ensure that these people with potential had what they needed to become great. This careful cultivation of the noble savage, or what Jean-Jacques Rousseau's like wild child, was part of Enlightenment ideals. They saw people who were like, this is awful sounding, but like quote, outwardly filthy, but inwardly pure, as like more noble than quote unquote civilized people. And Anderson fit the part perfectly. They called him a genuine savage and meant it as a compliment. Sibony was as good as his word. He set Anderson up with lodgings and a tutor and began giving him free singing lessons. But when Anderson's voice dropped a year later, the project was given up. But in that time, Anderson had become close to Sibony and his family, so he wasn't just like kicked out. He was quickly introduced into Bakahus, the home of Kama and Nude Rabek and the great meeting place of like the intellectual circle of Denmark. Today, it's remembered as an important hub for the Danish golden age of art and science. It was, quote, refreshingly free from the omnipresent repression of ideas and deeds under the absolute monarchy. It had a salon atmosphere where everyone was allowed to freely debate anything. And our young Anderson made his kind of clumsy entrance. Later on, the children of his fairy tales would, quote, tumble around the modern world after having been released from underground, end quote. And this is kind of exactly the mythology the young man built up for himself. The version of his life story that he told them was an irresistible fairy tale of his romantic childhood, which all the distinguished Copenhagen citizens swallowed whole. They did so primarily because the extraordinary story of the boy's life fit hands in glove with the prevailing ideas and educational ideals of a son of nature. Kama Rabek especially quickly noticed the boy's genius and was one of his staunchest supporters from kind of there on out. She had an eye, an eye for undeveloped potential, actually. She's credited with noticing other Danish writers like J.P. Minster and J.L. Heiberg first. At Bakahus, he met the Collin family, who would be an important group to him for the rest of his life. The patriarch of the family, Jonas Collin, was a well-respected civil servant and philanthropist. Importantly, Collin was the secretary of the foundation Ad Usus Publicos, which was a fund for artists and intellectuals at the time sponsored by the Crown. Despite the initial support of Sibony, Anderson soon kind of had to depend on charity, though. He found cheap lodging in the red light district with a woman named Madame Thorgerson. In his memoir, he claims to have no idea of what the women were doing at night. 
quote, I lived in happy dreams, paying almost no attention to the demoralizing surroundings that daily intersected with my life, end quote. When she could no longer provide him a room, he moved in with a Madame Henkel, another brothel owner in the red light district. From 1820, when his voice dropped and singing was no longer an option, to 1821, Anderson tried his hand at acting and dancing. He was allowed to be a background figure, but usually nothing more. He did manage to perform in a couple of ballets, Mina and later Ar Armida or Armida. The theater world was a dark one, quote, the tone behind the curtain was raw and vulgar and the interactions between male and female members was spiced with lurid improprieties. Many of the men drank like pigs, while the women, in, particularly, in particular the scantily clad ballerinas, were the lovers of distinguished and powerful men. End quote. The older actors also treated the younger actor or treated the younger learners quote like slaves, even physically hurting them for their own amusement. But thanks to his patrons, Anderson took private lessons from a man named Ferdinand Lindgren. As it quickly became clear that Anderson's estimation of like his own talents in the theater, acting, singing, dancing, were not based in reality. Um, he might have been considered a gifted child back at home, but in Copenhagen, he was just one of many gifted children coming to the city to seek their fortunes. So Lindgren suggested that Anderson get a better education in Latin and writing, which he applied to Jonas Collin for. Colin, by that point, was not only the secretary of that, like, aforementioned princely fund for artists, but also the manager of the Royal Theatre. And when I say applied, applied is a gentle word, Anderson manipulated events through placing ads in newspapers so that it became, like, very public that he was, like, a young artist doomed to fail without support. He self-published a novel titled Youthful Attempts, while also submitting, like, several terribly written plays to the theatre for consideration. The combined press and whispers of all of this forced Colin's hand. He recommended to King Frederick VI that funds from the Adusos Publicos Fund be used to get a proper education for Anderson. He was granted free schooling, food, and lodging for several years. And this is where we come to one of the darker moments of Anderson's early life. Now 17 years old, he was sent to school at Slagelse to study under the eminently educated headmaster Simon Meisling. So part of the darkness of this moment was that the adults around him had banned Anderson from writing poetry and making art during his education, like, so that he could focus. Though Anderson didn't, like, totally listen to this. But the worst part was that Meisling was a monster. Well... According to Anderson's memoirs, at least, Meisling was a relentless monster from day one. According to the fairy tale of my life, Meisling's campaign of education sounds like, quote, an account of how to ruin the soul of a child. Anderson famously compared his school years under Meisling as similar to all the distressed Dickensian boys of English literature. Many people categorize this relationship as abusive, and I agree that the word fits. Even the best moments of their relationship when Meisling treated Anderson as something of an adopted son seem part of like a larger boom and bust cycle of abuse. In his diaries from the time, Anderson seems to understand that he's being forged in fire. The two men represented different eras, different values, different ideals of children and education and even fiction. Anderson saw some of this suffering as a necessary and normal part of education, though much of it he also saw as a horror that he had to endure. Meanwhile, Meisling's life slowly fell apart during the five years that Anderson was his student. He began to drink heavily, and eventually so many grievances were filed against him that he was forced to resign from his post as headmaster. 
Initially, Anderson lived with a landlady in Slagelse, and I'll talk more about this in a little while. Eventually, though, Meisling convinced him to move in with the Meisling family after a campaign of being, like, really paternal and kind. Meisling's real motivation was not love for Anderson, as he tried to say it was, but money. He had several children, his wife, and like, maids to feed. He needed Anderson's generous allowance from the government fund. He moved in, and Meisling changed completely, tormenting Anderson by alternately giving him the silent treatment for weeks on end, and then seizing every opportunity to fight with the boy. The headmaster had, quote, sudden and totally unpredictable mood swings, which meant that at one moment Anderson might be psychologically terrorized and the next praised and encouraged, end quote. Anderson, who was already, like, sensitive and anxious, really couldn't bear this. Jonas Collin had picked Meisling to tutor Anderson himself. Meisling had a reputation for being intense and strict with the rules of education, and Anderson had already developed a reputation as, like, a flighty dreamer who was unlikely to listen to, like, gentle constructive criticism. Colin believed that Anderson needed a direct teacher who wouldn't be afraid to get frank with him. He couldn't have predicted that Meisling would become downright cruel to Anderson over time. There are many examples of this, but I think the one that makes it kind of the most clear is the fact that on the final night that Anderson lived with the Meisling family, the headmaster would send down the maids to Anderson's room to ask him to return first his pillow, and then next his blankets, and then eventually his mattress, in order that the new lodger and student might have them. As if they didn't have extras in the house, they just wanted him to be miserable. He passed the night sleeplessly and was probably, definitely, relieved to finally be freed of the Meisling family the next morning. He was freed before he formally graduated and sat exams, actually. Uh, for nearly five years, Anderson had sent Jonas Collin only polite updates that hid the reality of how cruel Meisling was to Anderson, hid that he picked on him in every lesson and constantly humiliated him in front of the class. But finally, Anderson told Colin what was really happening in a direct letter written on October 26, 1826. He wrote, quote, Every day he expresses his displeasure toward me, and on Sunday morning when I bring my Latin essay, he shakes my soul at every mistake, speaking the most awful truths. That he wishes the best for me, I have no doubt, but everything arouses his displeasure, and I live in the most horrid tension, end quote. Anderson then listed all the degrading remarks that Meisling had lobbed at him. Colin may have doubted him, but he did his duty and followed up with Meisling, inquiring as to like what was going on. It was the first time Meisling's teaching strategies were questioned, but it would not be the last. Because Meisling reacted very poorly to this letter from Colin. It would have been easy for him to be like, oh, he's being dramatic, I'll apologize, everything's fine, I mean, they were far away. But instead, he wrote back and basically told Jonas Collin to go to hell. He called Anderson, quote, a sickly, pampered creature, and with that, basically signed his own dismissal. Collin warned Meisling that he went too far, but instead of changing his tone, Meisling grew worse. He refused to heat Anderson's room throughout the winter. He stopped allowing Anderson to wash his clothing, and he began feeding him only rotten food. Since the cat was kind of already out of the bag, Anderson promptly reported each new offense to Colin. On top of the steady stream of bad news, a new tutor had been hired at the school, Christian Whirlin, who is basically the hero of this little part of the story, because he saw how Meisling was treating Anderson and immediately took a day off to go to Copenhagen and tell Jonas Collin to his face how bad the situation was. Christian Whirlin is by far the best adult in Anderson's life, and he'd known him the least amount of time. After that, Colin finally pulled Anderson out of Meisling's school. 
Misley never got another grant from the public funding that Colin was in charge of, and his career was destroyed. Anderson still had 18 months left of education, but these were provided in Copenhagen by a private tutor, Ludwig Christian Mueller. Uh, he was a young theological student recommended by Christian Whirlin, and the two got along really well. Anderson would go on to pass his exams just fine. The treatment Anderson endured left scars. He often had nightmares about his old instructor right up until his death, which he documented in his diary. And for 40 years after that, nearly until Anderson's death, he dealt with this trauma by writing. References to evil headmasters abound in his stories. For instance, in a book he wrote in 1829, Walking Tour, the protagonist goes to hell where he meets a schoolmaster who torments him even though he's chained up and being tormented himself. Often... People try to put a silver lining on the treatment Anderson endured at Meisling's school and home. I'm not a big fan of that perspective because, I mean, yeah, sure, he learned grammar and art history and became a more technically accomplished writer under Meisling's instruction. But like, what might we have today if Anderson had not felt so downtrodden? What worlds could he have conjured up if he wasn't trying to escape his own pain? Yes, art is often an outlet for great suffering, but the possibility of great art doesn't make causing pain acceptable. Anderson could have just as easily died by his own hand or taken up drinking and died from alcoholism, which is what happened to his mother in the 1830s. There was no guarantee that this abuse from Meisling was going to turn out, you know, quote-unquote, well, and it says more about Anderson's strong sense of self that this life he'd lived up until his early 20s didn't beat all the magic out of him. It would have been so easy for him to become a jaded adult, and instead he created worlds of such beauty which he was on track to do before meeting Meisling. One thing that did crop up during this time was what Anderson called his rhyming demon. It was an imaginary manifestation of this calling he felt to write, which was a calling he didn't feel that he could ignore. Anderson had been forbidden to write during his time in school in order to focus on his studies, and the rhyming demon became like a spirit of civil disobedience, quote, an anarchical joker who defied all authorities, including a headmaster, who couldn't understand that a poet was not something a person becomes by reading the work of other poets, it was something innate, end quote. It's a fun image, and it gives us like some sense of how Anderson kept up his spirits and continued writing in the face of adversity, which is great. But I keep thinking of his earliest novel, Youthful Attempts, in which a fairy gives a boy a kiss, thereby bestowing upon him a destiny to spread joy. The boy is very clearly Anderson as a nine-year-old, and the novel was written before meeting Meisling. Would this so-called rhyming demon that Anderson conjured up while enduring Meisling have been the much more cheerful image of a rhyming fairy if he'd been somewhere better? Is it a demon, a much darker, more threatening creature, because of what Meisling was telling Anderson, that he was a monster, that there is something wrong with him? I don't know. I suspect that in a supportive, happier environment, the rhyming demon might have been a fairy instead. In 1826, Anderson furtively wrote one of the poems that he would become most famous for. It wasn't published until after he escaped from Meisling, but then it was published on the front page of a Copenhagen newspaper and then translated into Germany, or into German, where it became incredibly popular. The poem, The Dying Child, is short, but it's a work of art, and it broke many of the rules of writing at the time. Jens Anderson calls it epochal, it's not, which is not light praise and well-deserved. I'm not going to read the whole poem, but I will link to it in the show notes. Um, however, it begins, quote, 
Mother, I am tired. I want to sleep. Let me fall asleep by your heart, but do not weep. First promise me that, for your tears are burning on my cheek. It is cold in here. Outside the storm threatens, but in dreams all is so beautiful, and I see the sweet angel children when I close my weary eyes." End quote. Okay, so here's why this is groundbreaking. It was possibly the first poem ever to explore a child's nature from the child's point of view. It really perfectly renders a small child's kind of like spiritual and intellectual understandings and perspective. Up until then, children were static objects in literature. Even Rousseau, who argued for the inherent value of childhood, never wrote from the perspective of a child. Anderson made the child a subject, not an object, for possibly the first time ever in literature. No other author had given children agency in literature before, and to have that first poem ever be a child solemnly confronting their own death really stunned people. It quickly shot him to fame, and even later in his life, people would comment on this poem, saying it was what they knew him from. After he arrived back in Copenhagen, Anderson began producing cut paper art in addition to his poetry and prose. He'd made dolls and doll clothes and like little theaters as a child. And I think these were sort of like a new iteration on that art form. These new paper artworks were usually of people and scenes like from his stories. They're beautiful and intricate. I'm going to include some of the show transcript, but I just want to just bring that up because it'll come back later. In 1829, Anderson wrote and published Walking Tour, which was very favorably received. Critics loved the way the book played with illusions, even though he lobbed like insults at critics in it. The book is somewhat combative, Jens Anderson calls it searching. It is rebellious and anti-authoritarian, it, though it does bow down to one power, romanticism. The works of other romantic writers like Friedrich Schlegel and Ludwig Teig, or Ludwig Teig uh, appear in the book as part of the main character's exploration of his own fragmentary and disjointed character. The same year, he made his writing debut at the Royal Theatre with a play called Love at Nikolai Tower or What Does the Gallery Say? Both this play and walking tour were revolutionary because they asked the viewer and reader to decide the ending on their own. Anderson leaves both vague. In the play, the narrator actually announces that the audience can choose the ending by either booing or cheering. Critics were less sure about the play than they were about the novel, but they both remained popular during Anderson's life. In 1830, Anderson's first poetry collection was published. It was titled Poems. <laughs> there doesn't seem to have been like a proper editor for it because it's full of like grammatical errors and it's not like well developed. The collection quote, vacillates between the sublime and the slipshod. Anderson would later call parts of it quote, nonsense compote. But they also have like an irresistible power to them. And he's clearly developing a lyrical kind of like persona, personality in it, and the two poetry collections that followed, Fantasies and Sketches in 1831 and The Twelve Months of the Year in 1832, were kind of further development on that voice. In fact, one of the poems deals with a writer's perspective on the tyranny of form and uses math symbols in it as part of his like artistic rebellion. After being rescued from the trap of Meisling's school, Anderson began to view Jonas Collin as something of a father figure. He was influential in Danish society and managed his money sensibly, growing the family's wealth. His role as the secretary of the King's Art Foundation that gave grants to artists put him in touch with the greatest Danish artists and thinkers of the day. And as Anderson's fame grew, which it did quickly in the 1830s, Colin never changed how he treated Anderson. He remained reserved but supportive, giving Anderson both a safe place to land and redirection when he needed it. Anderson became a regular visitor to the Colin home and befriended the children of the house. 
He especially became interested in Edvard Cullen, who had been tasked with editing Anderson's Latin papers when Anderson returned to Copenhagen. Edvard was cold and short-tempered with Anderson, yet he became determined to win him over. In the fall of 1830, Anderson met and fell in love with Ryborg Voigt, the daughter of a wealthy shopkeeper. She was extroverted and charming and, importantly, already engaged to someone else. She was unattainable and therefore perfect for someone obsessed with like romantic ideology. The two had only a few meetings together, which were all very chaste, which was his preferred mode, as we'll see. He was infatuated with her, but not unhappy about the fact that she was unattainable. It's clear from the way he describes Ryborg in his letters to Edward Cullen at the time that the sensual side of love was like not really in his wheelhouse. He describes her, but she never seems substantial, like a woman with a body. She is depicted as an ethereal being, which was a pattern Anderson would establish with all the women he kind of fell in love with. Women loved Anderson, though, and he was surrounded by them constantly. Later in his life, he would have dinner with King Frederick VII of Denmark. After, King Frederick would witness his own mistress abandon him to disappear into the, quote, enthusiastic crowd surrounding Anderson. Baffled and jealous, the king asked Anderson, um, or the king asked what Anderson possessed that none of the other men at the banquet did, and Anderson said... It must be hidden attributes, your majesty, and what was probably like an accidentally suggestive response. But Anderson would put these women in almost like sacrosanct roles, is the, it's the word Johns Anderson uses. Um, he calling them like sisters and neutralizing whatever sexual allure that they held. For a brief time, he courted like Jonas Collins' sister Louise, who was 18 when he was 25. Most people don't take this courtship seriously in terms of, like, love or attraction. It seems more likely that Anderson was trying to marry into the Colin family in order to never lose access to them. Instead, by 1832, the short-tempered older brother of Louise, Edvard, had become the focus of Anderson's attention. Even in his letters to Louise, he talks about Edvard, begging Louise to put in a good word for him for her with her brother. As I mentioned at the top, Anderson's sexuality was, and remains, a matter of intense debate. He never married and was extremely close to several men in his lifetime, exchanging very intense letters with them. Different biographers take different perspectives of this. Some believe he was kind of just a garden variety gay man. In the 18th century, stereotypes of what gay men were quote-unquote like were emerging and Anderson fit most of them. He remained a bachelor, he lived in the city, he loved the theater, he was artistic, he dressed like a dandy. But others point to the intense relationships he had with a few women to say that he was actually straight. Others say that he was bisexual, which is the second most modern reading of his sexuality, I think. The famous scientist of sexuality, Alfred Kinsey, inventor of the Kinsey scale, got a hold of Anderson's papers at some point, and in reading them, he apparently suspected that Anderson was gay, and even compared the stolen voice of Ariel in The Little Mermaid to, quote, how Anderson could not tell the world of his own homosexual love, and thus was sublimating his feelings of being, like, silenced into this story. So if you are uncomfortable with frank discussions of sex, this would be a good time to skip forward, like, Ooh, fully like 10 minutes, I think. 
Now, all of this speculation is further complicated by the simple fact that Anderson probably never had sex. He had opportunities, to be clear. He visited brothels. But in his diary, he maintains a sense of horror at the reality of sex with another person. It's mixed up a little in, like, religion for him. He refers to the sinful nature of sexual arousal and is proud of himself when he doesn't give in to that. Which is interesting, considering what I've mentioned previously about his relaxed approach to faith. It's worth noting that when he fell in love with women, as he did with Ryborg when he was 25, their physicality wasn't important to him. In fact, quote, sexually mature women were not only alien to Anderson, they were also terrifying. And at times, whenever the conversation or his thoughts turned to prostitutes, disgusting and vile, end quote. Anderson later said himself, quote, my contempt for women rose to such an extent that it undoubtedly was that which continued to preserve me uncorrupted and innocent, end quote. In his autobiography, he wrote, quote, In general, I felt a strange revulsion for older girls, basically meaning anyone over 12. Not to imply that he was a pedophile, he was not attracted to girls under 12. He just really didn't know what to do with the, like, reality of an adult woman. We also can see in his diaries, however, that he masturbated often and noted when he did so. He would draw like little X's or crosses next to days when he'd masturbated, which I really only mention because it's relevant to another theory about Anderson's sexuality, that he might have been asexual. He was not aromantic, to be clear. He seems to have had a penchant for falling in love easily and often. In fact, part in part because he saw himself as like a capital R romantic in philosophy, he allowed himself to feel everything very intensely, including his love for the people in his life. Now, one thing that I haven't discussed much is the possibility that Anderson's horror of sex might have to do with severe unresolved trauma. Jens Anderson mentions in his biography that Simon Meisling, Anderson's tutor that I talked about earlier, was, quote, partially to blame for the fact that Anderson, as an erotic being, remained at the child stage during the 1820s, end quote. He mentions that Meisling, along with other benefactors, was troubled by Anderson's, quote, oddly sexless nature, and commented on it quite mercilessly. He quotes, Fear the sickliness your imagination suffers from and fight against it. Fix your eyes forward like a man, do not whimper like a woman who does not have a man's courage, end quote. For most people, it is very common for their teenage years to be when they start exploring their sexuality, and the adults in his life found it very strange that he like wasn't chasing after people the way that they expected. They very clearly had like a man's man idea of masculinity and what healthy boys should like be like, which left no room for like a sensitive artist. Anderson could have been otherwise a stereotypical teenage boy, but it seems like these people would have taken issue with the feminine side of him that he was comfortable with, like kind of no matter what though. He was told that this side of him was sickly and that he needed to suppress these like attributes. By 1826, when he was 21, Anderson's letters to Jonas Collins began to question his sexuality and worry over his, quote, womanish, tedious character. Later, he wrote, I don't really understand myself, but I can tell that I'm much too feminine and weak. So clearly, Meisling is having an impact, causing Anderson some anguish, and Anderson retreated further into himself and these, like, idyllic images of innocent children that his psyche was conjuring up. No, but none of these people who were quote-unquote concerned were like looking for why Anderson might be like this. They were just telling him to stop it. 
So, I briefly mentioned earlier that when he was a child, he worked at a factory in Odensa. It was a different time, child labor was a thing. He was asked to sing for the other men, and according to his memoir, he sang so beautifully that the men apparently became convinced he was a girl and held him down to prove he was a boy. Remember how I emphasized that his memoir was a sanitized version of his childhood? So the version I just said is how he renders this event in A True Story of My Life, but in stories he told later to close friends who then wrote them down, the men stripped him of his clothes and examined his genitalia to prove that he was a boy. There's also some implication in some versions that this moment turned violent, and it's implied that Anderson might have been raped by the men in the factory, though that's not confirmed. He ran home crying and told his mother what happened, and she swore that he never had to go back despite how destitute the family was. I want to point out that even if Anderson was not raped by these men, forcibly removing a child's clothing to inspect their genitalia is already sexual assault. Okay, soon after that, he decided to leave Odenso the second he was confirmed. But Copenhagen wasn't much safer. He landed lodging in two brothels where he witnessed clients come and go and the way they treated the women there. Again, in his memoirs, he claims to be ignorant of what is happening around him. But this really, like, strange credulity for me... Remember, his memoirs are deliberately fashioned to adhere to the romantic ideal of the innocent child, so he has to protect that image in spite of the truth, which we see time and again in his, um, in his version of his childhood. Because this wasn't the first time that he would have encountered prostitution. Odensa was a difficult place to live in the 19th century, and many women turned to prostitution there. The city had a significantly higher rate of -of out-of-wedlock births than the rest of the country, and Copenhagen was already at 25% illegitimate births. We know that Anderson's maternal grandmother ran a brothel, and there's some evidence that his mother turned to sex work as well. His half-sister Karen also probably turned to sex work at some point in her life. Um, I mean, when she was found dead, it was in the red light district. So for Anderson to just, like, not notice that he was living in a brothel with sex workers when he was already a teenager... seems ridiculous? (laughs) To be clear, I'm not saying that being around sex workers was traumatizing, but that seeing the desperation they experienced in a world where women didn't have any other options and men could do whatever they wanted and then leave, that might have been traumatizing. Anderson would have seen the way women having children out of wedlock were treated, and he must have witnessed some very dark moments in the brothels that he lived in. As if that wasn't enough, in his first lodgings in Slagelse, he shared a bed with a pastor's son who was not very pious at all. Sharing a bed was common for school-aged boys. What was traumatizing was that this boy would come home late at night, drunk and aggressive, and would attack Anderson while he slept. He would hold Anderson down and force him to listen to like lewd stories of the boy's visits to prostitutes or his erotic fantasies. From the way Anderson describes it, it also sounds like the boy possibly sexually assaulted him or tried to. Anderson would run away and sleep on the landlady's couch when he could, but sometimes he couldn't get away. Together, all of this paints a picture of like really dark, repeated traumas that he experienced by the time he was in his mid-teens, all of which was ignored and untreated by the adults around him, forcing Anderson to deal with it all alone. To me, it seems unsurprising that an already sensitive child who endured all of this might grow up to have a severe horror of sex and want to repress that impulse in himself. Romance, the fairy tale version of it, was something that Anderson wanted, but the physical act of sex repulsed him for life. And with a childhood like this, 
that makes sense to me. I'm not saying that sexual assault survivors who don't go to therapy are doomed to live lonely lives where they never have their own sexual needs fulfilled and never get married, like that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that a lot of the discussion of Anderson's sexuality is not trauma-informed. It's not out of the realm of possibility for children who endure this kind of trauma to repress it and hide in fictional worlds and to try to avoid growing up. Anderson just did it really famously. People kind of make a joke a little out of Anderson's repressed sexuality, which makes me really sad. Even his closest friends in his adulthood had a, quote, burning desire to see the virginal author on the lap of a dark and sensual belladonna, but Anderson held his ground preferring platonic love, end quote. I'm not at all surprised that Anderson abhorred all that sex included and preferred the company of innocent children. He must have felt much safer around that innocence than around his peers and other adults who had abused him time and again. That was a long excursion, but I just wanted to kind of like explore that all at once instead of keep doing it throughout the episode in case it's problematic or in case it's difficult for other people to hear. Nevertheless, despite Anderson's uh, repressed sexuality, there's a lot to be said for the intense friendship that he had with Edford Cullen. Over the span of nearly 50 years, they exchanged more than 500 letters that we know of, many of which are emotionally intense. Edvard refused to be another one of Anderson's enraptured, uncritical admirers, as he put it, and many of their letters are as difficult and harsh as they are intense and loving. In fact, in John Anderson's biography, Edvard comes off almost as villainous in numerous instances, and he makes suspicious choices that historians have decried since. For instance, when Anderson died in 1875, Edvard handled all the legal paperwork and wouldn't allow Anderson's letters with the Colin family to be published by a third party. Instead, he published a book called Hans Christian Andersen and the Colin Family, which edited down their exchanges dramatically. When the unpublished, later, unpublished letters were later revealed in the 1930s, people were up in arms because Edvard's editing had dramatically changed the context of the letters. There was talk of his, quote, list of sins, <laughs> and his editing was classified as a, quote, inexcusable misrepresentation of reality. Strong words. In fact, this was a power Edvard exercised over a lot of Anderson's writing. He had edited Anderson's autobiographies. Drafts that survive among Edvard's papers show that he drastically cut things out in the name of, like, editing. And he especially cut anything, quote, too tender or effusive. And hey, listen, editors have to cut. I'm sure that an editor would love to cut some of this episode down since I'm now 18 pages into this script. But Edward's edits are not unbiased. They are rooted in his own idea of what should be public and what should be private. All that to say that the nature of Anderson's feelings for Edvard are debated. John Sanderson points out that men in the early 1800s were allowed to express more emotionally intense friendships than we got used to in the 20th century. Masculinity was not so fragile back then. Moreover, and this is part of my own research, sexual identity didn't exist then in the same way that we think of it today. Certainly there were people who were only attracted to members of the same sex or to members of both sexes, but they didn't have words like homosexuality and bisexuality to classify that attraction. Romance, attraction, and sexuality were all much more fluid at that time. 
Regardless, as John says in his autobiography, in his biography, quote, it's evident from their letters that the boundaries of an ordinary formal friendship were quickly being exceeded by the insistent and in certain respects, very impatient Anderson, end quote. For instance, he really wanted Edvard to use the Danish informal do with him rather than the much more formal duh. We don't really have an equivalent in English, I guess maybe calling someone Mr. Smith as opposed to like John, but this is like a whole verb tense. It's similar to the difference between tu and vu in French or tu and usted in Spanish. Um, Anderson requested this deepening intimacy numerous times, but for over 40 years of their friendship, Edward denied him this, insisting on keeping some formal linguistic distance between them. That said, in one letter that did survive Edvard's purge, he expresses jealousy over Anderson's relationship with his other tutor, Ludwig Müller. He writes, quote, I have been a little jealous hearing about your love for LM. You're not about to dismiss me, are you? Since they were both tutoring Anderson at the time, this has like some plausible deniability, but still, it's surprisingly unrestrained for Edvard. In his book about Anderson, Edvard would say, quote, He dreamed of finding in me a novel friend, but I was not at all suited for that. Again, Johns Anderson reads this as a resistance to an intense fraternal friendship, but a lot of historians of queer history see this as a sly admission of something more romantic or sexual, an attraction that Edvard didn't return. The difference really lies in whether or not you believe that these intense, like capital R, romantic friendships were truly sexless, or if that dimension was just like hidden for safety. We saw much stricter norms around gender and sexuality emerge, and the subsequent fear for like a person's legacy led people to destroy evidence of earlier sexual relationships with members of the same sex. It's not a far leap to wonder if that's what Edvard was doing by culling his letters with Anderson after Anderson's death in 1875. Especially because in Denmark, this change was actually already beginning during their friendship. The, the state had tried like silent suppression when it came to uncovering like illegal homosexual affairs because they were technically illegal at the time. But people at the highest levels of government were starting to think around 1814 that silence wasn't really working. A famous case that year where 14 men, including some actors, were quote unquote uncovered having sexual relationships was the catalyst for re reconsidering what the government should do to quash quote-unquote unnatural relationships. The move to prosecute and punish was still far away, but the Colin family would have known about this case, and while Edvard would have been young, he would always have inner access for these stories. That might explain why he was careful about what letters from Anderson were released publicly. Unfortunately, unless more letters emerge or another diary of Anderson's is uncovered, we cannot know with 100% certainty what the full nature of their relationship was. On top of that, I also want to note that they might not have been on the same page about their relationship. Edvard's quote about not being suited for the relationship Anderson wanted serves as evidence of that. Plenty of people exist in friendships where the feeling is uneven or we wouldn't have so much art that revolves around longing and jealousy and fantasy. All that to say that it's likely that their relationship was not sexual simply because of what I discussed about Anderson's issues with sexuality earlier. But whether Anderson was in love with Edvard is the part that's heavily debated. In one letter he wrote, quote, Our friendship is like the mysteries. It cannot be truly analyzed. Oh, if only God made might make you very poor and me a rich, distinguished nobleman. Yes, then I would properly initiate you into the mystery. End quote. 
It goes on, and there is so much you can read about this well-documented friendship. Anderson used it as an inspiration in a lot of his literary work from 1830 to 1840, disguised under several names and in all manner of costumes. His love for Edward Collin is wound through dozens of works of literature. There is so much more that I could say, but since we're about an hour in already, um, I'm going to move on. If you're interested in more information about Anderson and Edvard, I recommend picking up basically anything ever written about Anderson. Edvard will come up. In April 1833, Anderson applied for funding from the artist foundation Adusos Publicos. He wanted to go abroad to Italy to continue his education. He was awarded 600 rigsdaler annually for two years to go. While in Italy in 1833, he wrote the play Agnet and the Merman, based on based somewhat on his friendship with Edvard, though it also had a long history in Danish folklore. He regarded the work as, quote, the most significant piece he had ever written up to that point, though today it's not the most famous story about a mermaid that he's written. Unfortunately, Edvard hated it and was a bit fierce about that hatred to Anderson. He especially hated that Anderson had lifted lines directly from their letters and put them in the mouths of fictitious lovers. One in particular was the, quote, too feminine man Hemming, saying, quote, the spoken duh becomes the heart's do. That is the dream of friendship. In the same letter that he rebuked Anderson for this, uh, he also informed him, quite callously, that his mother had died. He offered very little sympathy about this loss. Remember when I said that Edvard is painted somewhat villainously? <laughs> Anderson, however, seemed to take the loss of his mother in stride. They had grown distant over the years. She never had learned to read or write, so they couldn't keep up a correspondence to keep them close. On the rare occasions when they did write, she was mostly writing to him to ask for money, which he would send. And in trying to insert himself into the Colin family, Anderson seems to have taken on the mantle of orphan before it was really true. He was in Italy for an eruption of Mount Vesuvius in fe February 1834, which he documented in his diary with like a lot of enthusiasm. He wrote, quote, Smoke swirled thickly up out of Vesuvius and the lava gave off a cloud of steam. At dusk, I walked down to the sea. Vesuvius uh, spewed great streams of lava. It blazed into the air. It was like tongues of fire, fire flaring up. This is the most violent I have seen it, end quote. The next day, once the lava had cooled a little, he hiked the mountain to get close to the still smoking top of it. However, it was too hot and he had to go back. Also while in Italy, Anderson began working on a new novel, The Unpro... The Improvisatore, sorry, I'm not great at Italian pronunciation or Danish pronunciation for that matter. <laughs> like many of his works, it sublimated his own reality into something that he could wrestle with and untangle. The character Antonio is aware that he is different from everyone around him, as both an artist and as a sexual being. In chapter 8, Antonio says, quote, Resounding in my soul were dissonances that I myself was unable to resolve, end quote. While Antonio's beloved friend Bernardo has, like, carnal relationships with women, Antonio, quote, settles for giving his friend amorous looks and listening to his reports of these rendezvous, which he then converts to art. Anderson was clearly dealing with his own issues in this chapter, and really in this whole character. The book ends with Antonio marrying a woman who is, quote, so ethereal in Anderson's description that we forget about her the instant the book is closed. The trip to Italy, however, made a huge impression on Anderson and he would return there several more times throughout his life. 
We've come, finally, to Anderson writing and publishing fairy tales. To be clear, fairy tales of course already existed, he did not invent them. He just created new ones and retold older ones in new and inventive ways. His first was a short story called The Ghost that he actually tucked um, at the end of his first poetry collection in 1830, but it was received very badly by critics and he didn't try his hand at writing fairy tales again until 1835. He was home from Italy, finally, and broke. He'd used up the money from the grant he'd received, and he hadn't published anything new while he'd been in Italy, so his income streams were a little low. So in the spring of 1835, he started working on a collection of fairy tales, which he explicitly told his friends were, quote, fairy tales told for children. He had set out to make them children's stories, which didn't really exist at the time. Few adults respected children or childhood, and even few, like, fewer believed that there was inherent value in it, at least enough value to, like, tell stories that catered to them. For Anderson to explicitly write stories for kids was a big shift in the literary zeitgeist. I think his interest in folklore and his struggle with adult relationships led him down this path toward children's stories, safe places where he could sublimate scary things but usually ensure a happy ending. When he wrote the stories, he often presented them in like a literary salon with adults where people would listen to him read and then he could duck out kind of quickly. He never hung around after. In the salons, the fairy tale was complete and, quote, the tiniest linguistic detail had been carefully considered. The crowd would remain silent and still, rapt, listening to him. We have abundant documentation of this from people who would write about the evening to their friends or in their journals or in their own memoirs. Most adult listeners would fall under the, quote, hallucinatory spell of Anderson's reading, and only after the tale was over did they realize how far they had followed the author into his flights of fancy, end quote. But Anderson also told his tales to children and even actively created them with children. He would take the paper art that he cut out that I mentioned earlier and improvise stories with them, basically performing for children in the nurseries of his friends' houses. He would tell whatever version of the story happened to strike his fancy that day, and he used this as a way to test different narratives. Improvising the stories with children, quote, gave the fairy tales free reign, much more than in the salon. In contrast to the reverent silence that Anderson required from the politely listening adults, in the children's room, all sorts of prattle and foolishness were allowed, end quote. He especially developed a, quote, remarkable ability to bring to life the sounds of nature, which would make strong impressions on the kids. He brought these sounds into his stories and became one of the first authors to use onomatopoeia. These sounds come naturally to children, but were educated out of them because it was viewed as uncultivated, wild, and primitive language that had nothing to do with the finer art forms. Anderson used it to connect better with them. Anderson's own childhood, combined with playtime with, with these kids, resulted in a collection of stories that are packed full of promising, improvising children who have big personalities and free will. Many of them are anti-authoritarian, yes, but they also often anticipate breakthroughs in children's psychology that would happen during the 20th century. You can read all of them for free online. If you're interested, I'll include a link in the transcript. His first collection of four stories was aptly titled Fairy Tales Told for Children. A few months later, he put out a second volume of Fairy Tales Told for Children, which contained Thumbelina. The third installment, which came out over a year later, included The Emperor's New Clothes and The Little Mermaid, which, of course, has just been remade and just came out in theaters. Like many of Anderson's fairy tales, his version of The Little Mermaid is pretty different from the 1990s Disney version of the movie. The mermaid, in, in Anderson's version, the mermaid doesn't win the prince's heart and she dies at the end of the story because that was her bargain with the sea witch. 
In his story, the mermaids are not God's creatures, so they don't have eternal souls, but they can earn one if they make a human man fall in love with them, which, yikes. But when she dies, she becomes one of the daughters of air who can, like, earn their eternal souls by doing good deeds, like cooling off a child who is too hot in the sun. And that's where Anderson leaves the tale. I haven't seen the new movie yet. I suspect they haven't adapted this, like, Daughters of Air plotline. But yeah, it ends kind of abruptly um, and doesn't really have the, like, fairy tale happy ending the way we think of it, though it has a very moralistic ending, which would have been traditional for the 19th century. One thing that Disney got right in the 1990s adaptation, though, is the undercurrent of subversive social messaging. Anderson had clearly transmuted his own angst about his sexuality into the story. Remember, the mermaid, Ari in the movie she's Ariel, that's not her name in the story as far as I remember, but she's mute and dies without ever being with the man she loves. Plus, she doesn't have a soul, which is clearly a reference to like 19th century hang-ups about same-sex attraction and sin. And the animated adaptation does the same. Writer-producer Howard Ashman was a gay man who had survived the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s. Reagan and, like, Republicans in the U.S. claimed that HIV-AIDS was God's punishment for homosexuality and had, and had refused to allocate federal funding for research for a cure. According to Smithsonian Magazine, quote, Ashman saw the film as an opportunity to advance a social message through the medium of family entertainment. The last thing Americans would expect from Disney was a critique of patriarchy, but sure enough, Ashman's The Little Mermaid is a gutsy film about gender and identity, end quote. The stories were considered subversive in Anderson's time, too. Several, in fact, were considered, quote, directly harmful for literature as well as for children and their parents. Reviewers criticized a number of issues with the stories, including that they were ill-mannered, and that the depiction of the stories from a child's perspective was unesthetic and dangerous because it overstepped boundaries of pedagogical distance between adults and children. They thought that a child's self-image would be, quote, severely damaged by a storyteller who was such a congenial equal with children. The fairy tale was supposed to be a link in a child's education and to enforce power, end quote. Which, woof, enforce power? Talk about insecure adults. Clearly, being sensitive around content is nothing new. Anderson's view of children as autonomous beings with inner lives was, like, considered downright heretical by many people in Europe around this time. Anderson was really the first author since Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who had died 50 years before, who took children seriously. Several of his peers and patrons encouraged him to stop writing these fairy tales, but he continued on. Other writers of the time were preoccupied with children too. Charles Dickens, who I'll come back to in a minute, was writing many stories about children, though they were not told from the child's point of view. When Anderson's work was translated into English, Dickens immediately became a big fan. The famous philosopher Soren Kierkegaard was also a, quote, fairy tale fanatic. He was not brought up with fairy tales at home, but he grew to love them as an adult and could spend entire days reading collections of fairy tales from all regions and eras. Unlike Dickens, though, Kierkegaard was not a big fan of Anderson's work. In 1840, while on a walk with his friend Israel Levin, a philologist, he railed against Anderson's work, even going so far as to tell several much darker fairy tales as examples of better ones. He found Anderson's work naive and sentimental. In fact, throughout the late 1830s, the Danish authors had been on a collision course. Copenhagen was not so big that they ran in the different circles. They were in fact jockeying for the same recognition in buyers a lot of the time. They were not friends, and in fact, each found the other comical and even ridiculous. 
In one of Kierkegaard's earliest published works, From the Papers of One Still Alive, he reviews and rails against Anderson's recent novel, Only a Fiddler. Anderson apparently got an early copy of this review because just before it came out, he cast Kierkegaard as like an exotic bird who babbles incessantly in his new fairy tale, The Galoshes of Fortune. It was an incredibly unflattering portrait of the young philosopher, showing that sometimes people really do bring out the worst in each other. Kierkegaard's issue with Anderson and his writing seems to stem from his own understanding of Anderson's female soul. As Jens Anderson points out, Anderson was always, quote, an easy target for other men. They could always so easily shift their own masculine troubles onto his shoulders. He criticizes, Kierkegaard criticizes all the soft men of Anderson's storytelling and exhorts Anderson to more or less straighten out or risk burning out. As harsh as this all is, it's notable because Kierkegaard was one of the first to point out that some of the weakest parts of Anderson's work, like his strangely moral conclusions, his barely rendered women, his character's frequent like anxiety and agony, he, Kierkegaard pointed out that these likely stemmed from the author's own confused sexuality. He pictured him as basically a hermaphroditic plant, quote, Anderson's primary powers should instead be compared to those flowers in which the male and female reside on one stalk. And yes, this does seem to be coming from a very homophobic place inside Kierkegaard. He was, after all, a, theolo a theologian first and foremost. But he's not wrong that Anderson is dealing with his trauma and his feelings about his sexuality on the page. Anyway, so in all of this, the two became eternal rivals. Anderson saw this review as the throwing down of a gauntlet, and the two would trade insults if they were ever in the same room. Unfortunately, Denmark was becoming kind of increasingly conservative as the 19th century continued, and Kierkegaard became the more famous Danish author, at least during their lifetimes. In fact, Anderson spent most of the rest of his life being much more beloved outside of Denmark than he was at home. When he traveled, he would frequently write home to Edward Cullen and others about how well-loved he was elsewhere, and it says a lot that they didn't believe him. They brushed his claims off, sure that Anderson was just exaggerating. When they did believe him, they saw him mentioning it as boasting and worse megalomania. Colin, in his book about Anderson, would claim that the author was a victim of his own vanity in the 1840s, but it's unclear how true this actually is. After being quite famous and beloved in Copenhagen for most of the 1830s, Anderson suddenly began to see a turn in the critics where reviewers could be very harsh with him. Nevertheless, in the 1840s, um, Anderson gained a permanent author stipend from the King Kingdom of Denmark to the tune of 600 rigs dollar per year. I would love to do like a conversion for you so we could know how much that is worth now, but the Kingdom of Denmark switched to a new currency, the Krona, in 1875 and haven't been able to find like an easy way of converting 600 rigs dollar in today's value. Nevertheless, in 1840, Anderson took a long trip through Eastern Europe, which seems to have culminated in Constantinople. It was a long and perilous trip, and no Dane had ever made it before, to our knowledge. He wrote a famous travelogue after it, called A Poet's Bazaar. It was very much a story of rebirth, of, quote, a Nordic artist who fled south and was reborn in the east, but on his way home, he panicked at the thought that his native land was once again so close, end quote. Anderson maintained a strained relationship with Denmark for the rest of his life, though outwardly he remained usually genial with his countrymen. He could occasionally be confrontational on his own and still felt like the self-confidence and pride that had long guided him. Some people, of course, saw this as vanity or smugness, but I think it had more to do with the sense of like vocation and spiritual calling that writing and art were to him. 
As his fame grew, Anderson became the nearly constant guest of the nobility while he was in Denmark and while he was traveling. He ostensibly stayed in their homes for free for like weeks or months at a time, though with the expectation that he would provide entertainment in the evenings by reading or would make paper cutouts or like other artistic decorations for them to appreciate. To some extent, they were using him as like an attraction to boost their own reputations. Anderson usually, quote, submitted to the exploitation of his name and reputation, even though at times it did feel like a sort of intellectual prostitution. It was in one of these manor houses that he began writing The Ugly Duckling, which we discussed a little earlier. Strangely, it's one of the only tales written by Anderson that has no real history of drafting to it. We don't have a scrap of like an original manuscript, an early draft, nothing. We know he had them because he wrote letters including that he was working on the story, but no one to date has found any early versions of it. The story, when it was published in 1843, was a sensation. For the first time, and for one of the last times, all Danish critics had a positive view of the story. He felt disarmed by the sudden praise, and it made him really anxious, but it also shot him to like further heights of fame, ensuring further stays in manor houses as well as more money than he really needed or knew what to do with. Despite this more like comfortable lifestyle, Anderson never forgot where he came from, and he always wrote well about the lower classes, quote-unquote. He may have been writing from a duke's estate, but he often wrote about poor kids and poor families. He grew wealthy himself, which was like a stark difference in his life from the poverty he'd grown up in, and Edvard Collin managed this money for him, making Anderson, before he died, into a millionaire in today's currency. In 1844, Anderson made an intense connection with the hereditary Grand Duke Carl Alexander of Weimar. He went there on something of like a pilgrimage to visit the hometown of the poet Goethe, but he became fixated on the Grand Duke. In his diary, after meeting him, Anderson called him handsome and became determined to befriend him. Carl, Carl Alexander already knew of Anderson's work and was a big fan. He was also interested in elevating Weimar back to the like hub of the cultural zeitgeist and was enticing artists like the extraordinarily famous Franz Liszt to stay there. Anderson was extremely interested in this, thinking that maybe he could more permanently stay in Weimar where his work was appreciated, but he never ended up actually doing that. This set off another of Anderson's intense, sensitive male friendships. They exchanged some 170 letters between 1844 and 1874. Like Edvard Collin before him, Anderson's letters to Carl Alexander and the Grand Duke's letters back to Anderson are intense and lovely. They quickly developed into like a flirtation with Carl Alexander writing things like, quote, you should enter into my soul like a deceased soul in India. As Anderson had once tried to tempt Edward Cullen into further closeness, this time Carl Alexander tried to tempt Anderson with promises of wandering arm in arm through the forest around his castle at Ettersburg. Anderson was just one of many people Carl Alexander was writing to, though. He had many intense male friendships that he found kind of through correspondence. Historians see these intense but probably platonic relationships as his, quote, cult of friendship and love. That said, many people have thought that if Anderson did ever have a sexual relationship, it was with Carl Alexander. He notes how the Grand Duke kissed me several times when they were reunited in 1846. Moreover, the Grand Duke was married but lived quite a separate life from his wife, so he was free to focus his attention on Anderson during Anderson's many visits. They were very affectionate with each other in Anderson's journal. He mentions how they held hands and even had to keep their feelings for one another under wraps because even by the relaxed standards of male friendships of the day, they were seemingly somewhat inappropriate with each other. 
1845, Anderson was home in Copenhagen planning another grand tour of Europe when he delayed it because the Swedish singer Jenny Lind came to Copenhagen. Anderson became infatuated with her and, quote, clung to her like a shadow, happy, naively hopeful, terribly vulnerable. In his diary, he wrote that he was sick at heart over his infatuation with her, but it was not a reciprocated feeling. She was reserved and distant, even cold to Anderson. But by December of 1845, he, like, realized that his love for her was as literary as his previous infatuation with Ryborg had been. He'd given up hope that they'd ever be together in any sense, but he never fully gave up like his idolization of her. To many scholars, Jenny Lind represents Anderson's great unrequited love, but I have my doubts. I mean, he himself says that the, the obsession with her was literary, and his love for her was more spiritual than sexual. Like the women in his novels, when he described the singer, he didn't focus on her body, rendering her somewhat sexless and androgynous. There's, there's one last famous encounter that I want to talk about really quickly. The awkward visit of Hans Christian Andersen to the home of Charles Dickens. As I mentioned before, the two were fans of each other's work, and when Andersen finally went to England in 1847, he was dying to meet Charles Dickens. It took several tries because they were both famous and in demand, but the two eventually met. When they finally did, it was at the home of Marguerite Blessington, who had, quote, such a tainted reputation among London's fine ladies that no British upper-class woman with any respect for herself, or her country, or Queen Victoria could justify being caught at that scandal-ridden house, end quote. Now, there are two different versions of what happened next. In Olivia Rutigliano's version in Lit Hub, Dickens was annoyed with Anderson from the start. Anderson came on too strong, sending Dickens too many letters, and just, I mean, ba basically annoying him. In her version, when Dickens invited Anderson to his house to stay, he was like being facetious, sarcastic even, and didn't mean it. In other versions, which seem a little bit more believable to me, they became friendly. They had been friends of each other's work, after all, and had a lot in common philosophically. They both loved children and wrote about them. They were both daydreamers, etc. After their initial meeting, they planned to get together again at Dickens' home, and Anderson had lunch with the Dickens family before he left England. After that, they exchanged letters for several years. At some point, Dickens sent Anderson 12 bound copies of his work with the note to Hans Christian Anderson from his friend and admirer Charles Dickens, end quote. In these letters, Dickens insisted more than once that Anderson come visit England again and even stay with Dickens when he did. Quote, and you, my friend, when are you coming again? Nine years, as you say, have flown away since you were among us. In those nine years, you have not faded out of the hearts of the English people, but have become even better known and more beloved than when you saw them for the first time. You ought to come to me, for example, and stay in my house, Dickens wrote. So, I don't know, like, would you write something like that to someone if you were being sarcastic and facetious like it doesn't translate to the page just like sometimes sarcasm doesn't translate in a text message you know like i don't know however regardless of what happened in between things quickly fell apart when anderson did actually arrive at the dickens home in the summer of 1857 it was a bad time to visit uh, dickens friend douglas gerald had just died like had died just the day before anderson's arrival and he was like wrapped up in helping the gerald family recover from this Dickens was also in the midst of arranging several theater performances, which he was also acting in. 
and brewing unbeknownst to anyone just yet, Dickens was already beginning his affair with the actress Nellie Turnin, who was half his age and who he'd eventually leave his wife for. But Anderson, living up to his reputation of being somewhat awkward and not being able to read a room, also didn't help things. He overstayed his welcome by nearly a month. He told Dickens he'd be in town for two weeks, but stayed for nearly five. What little command Anderson had had over the English language in the 1840s had faded by this point, so they had trouble communicating with him. He also apparently expected the eldest son of the house to shave him every day, even claiming that it was like a Danish tradition of hospitality. Of all these things, this is the one that feels the most blown out of proportion, to me at least by rumors in time. And Anderson had a tendency toward histrionics that the stiff upper lip of the British family like really couldn't abide. Apparently at the premiere of The Frozen Deep that Dickens was performing in and that Queen Victoria was apparently in the audience, Anderson loudly burst into tears, distracting everyone around him and overshadowing the performers. At one point in his trip, he actually, quote, hurled himself down on the Dickens family lawn and passionately wept um, because he'd received a bad review of his most recent novel, To Be or Not To Be. After Anderson left, Dickens apparently wrote the following, either over the mantle or on a mirror, quote, Hans Anderson slept in this room for five weeks, which seemed to the family ages. According to John Sanderson, our hero never really, quote, managed to register that he was bothering his hosts. Others, however, claim that he did, writing and even wrote to Dickens after he left, quote, kindly forget the unfavorable aspect which our life together may have shown you of me, end quote. So all of this was, like, perhaps forgivable. It might have faded with time. Um, you know, it was a tough time for everybody. Might have worked out. What would never be forgiven or fade with time was what Anderson did in 1860. He published a book that included a little account of his time in England titled, quote, A Visit with Charles Dickens. In it, Anderson presented a very intimate look at the Dickens household in 1857, when the family was kind of falling apart. Anderson wrote especially highly of Mrs. Dickens with her, quote, big gentle eyes and her good-natured smile. He compared her to all the, quote, most beautiful and honest women in her husband's novels, which could only be interpreted by Charles Dickens as a personal attack, since the basis of his request for the divorce it had to do with Mrs. Dickens being an inadequate mother and wife. Now, that's his legal request. Uh, the real thing was about this affair he was having. On top of that layer of drama, it also never occurred to Anderson to write to Dickens and at least like warn him that this publication was coming, let alone ask for permission to publish about his visit. So Dickens not only was like blindsided and furious, understandably. Anderson wrote a quote, naive sentimental portrait, but it quote, thundered through all of Europe at the same time that rumors of his affair with that young actress got out. Dickens never spoke to Anderson again. Though we're only in the 1850s and Anderson lived until 1875, I think we can start to wrap up here. Anderson's life continued in much the same way after this point. He wrote, he entertained the nobility, he searched for meaning. We've covered his great loves, his early stories, his struggles, his probably most embarrassing moments. He traveled more and more as he got older, eventually taking men in their 20s with him. Some people might frown on this, but these relationships were platonic, even pedagogical. 
Uh, he would teach them about art and history, and they would help carry his bags and feed him and make the trip smoother, especially as he grew weaker, like in his 50s and 60s. Anderson also grew more deeply religious as he got older, which I guess is common. Death was one of the most constant characters in his stories, but it became increasingly important to him to believe that death was just a transmutation, a moment between this life and the next. As his body grew weaker, he became dependent on morphine for the aches and pains that he felt. From John Anderson's account, it sounds like he grew depressed, thinking dark thoughts and becoming a shell of himself. Like his grandfather and his father before him, his mind seems to have gone a little at the end. His behavior became, quote, disgraceful, his remarks were rude, and he suddenly stopped worrying about his appearance. In his old age, he had finally distanced himself somewhat from Edward Cullen and had grown closer to the Melchior family. They took care of him when he became very sick in 1875 and could no longer care for himself. He dedicated his last book of fairy tales, published in 1872, to the Melchior family, quote, home of the heart. He died in their home on August 4th, 1875. He was 70 years old. Today, Hans Christian Andersen is remembered as an exceptional storyteller, the originator of some of our most beloved fairy tales. And that is the story of Hans Christian Andersen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know it was a really long one. If you did, please tell a friend about it. You can also let me know your thoughts by following me on Twitter and Instagram as unrulyfigures or joining us over on Substack at unrulyfigures.substack.com. If you have a moment, please give this show a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. Thanks for listening. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Mm-hmm.